Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, go ahead and move back to your seats. Thanks for showing up, Katie. Did I sound sarcastic? Thank you for showing up. Welcome, everyone. Um, so we're in a series called Eureka right now where, you know, our bigger vision for the year is all about renewal, that from the throne of King Jesus flows a river of renewal. And one of the things that we think needs renewing is our approach to uh, the Old Testament. A lot of people um, avoid the Old Testament altogether. It's the reason a lot of people have exited Christianity um, because they've been given small ways of understanding what it is that God's doing uh, through those stories, through those poems, through um, you know, the different genres that we find in Scripture um, that really set us up well to receive uh, what we call the New Testament in its fullness. So we can't ignore this stuff. So we need uh, a more creative and ultimately faithful lens to be able to really understand what it is that God is inviting us to. And we talked about uh, time and again that uh, we believe that the Bible is divinely inspired in that people are writing out of their experiences with this ineffable God, and the Bible is infallible, which means when we recognize the purpose of Scripture, it cannot fail us. And that purpose is to lead us into relationship with King Jesus. And so in this series, what we're doing is we're looking at some key stories in the Old Testament and examining how they might point us to Jesus in a couple different ways. There are Christophanies, which is um, kind of a revelation of the pre-incarnate Christ um, in the story itself. That's what we're going to be looking at today. We're looking at some typologies where there are people or there are events in the Old Testament that kind of hint at who Jesus will be in, in his fullness um, and kind of laying that alongside of what many of us are familiar with, with prophecy, um, which is proclamations of what God is going to do uh, through the arrival of his Messiah. So I'm going to pray and we'll just jump right into this today. Uh, so Heavenly Father, we do testify the truth that you're here, that you are with us. Um, and even you know, today, Lord, as we're looking at the story of Jacob, um, to remember that it's Jacob who, is, who falls asleep in the desert, has this powerful dream and wakes up and says, surely the Lord was in this place and I was the one that wasn't aware. And Lord, uh, we repent for our ignorance. We repent for when we have fallen asleep and forgotten um, that you have always been here, but we were the ones that weren't paying attention. And so, Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit even now to alight upon your dear ones here, uh, to open our ears to hear your voice, to open our eyes to see you move in and through us, and to open our hearts to receive your truth today and believe that you want to actually do something. We're not here simply because we want to know about you. We're here because we want to know you. Um, and would you bless that high expectation um, that we're going to meet you here and we're going to be changed. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today we're going to be looking at the story of Jacob. So if you know, uh, kind of there's this repeated motif throughout uh, scriptures of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the first three generations. So we looked at Abraham and Isaac last week, how um, God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac specifically to show the kind of God that he's not. Uh, the story of Isaac is interesting. It's got some little bits. And then Isaac has two sons, Jacob 
and Esau. And it's through Jacob that we see the 12 tribes of Israel becoming the establishment of the Jewish people. So uh, I'm going to give a little bit of Jacob's backstory because I find it hilarious. And then we're going to focus in on this one particular story where we see who is possibly the pre-incarnate Christ showing up to Jacob um, and radically changing the trajectory of his life. And then we're going to take some time to open our lives up in the same way as Jacob did. And we're going to encounter Jesus and he's going to radically change our lives. Hence why you have a half sheet of paper and a clipboard. This is City Beautiful Church. We know how this works. All right. So um, Isaac and Rebekah have two children, Esau and Jacob. And God tells Rebekah that the younger one is going to rule over the other. So she kind of receives this promise that the younger son is going to, is going to rule over the older one. And they're probably uh, our twins. Esau is born first. His name means Harry. Uh, and the younger one, Jacob. And Jacob means heel grabber. Um, so a lot of times when they speak of twins in the, in the scriptures, it's, it, it'll say something like, and it was added onto him his brother. And it's like that heel grabbing, like he like followed his brother out of the womb, which may or may not have happened, but it's a pretty great name. But the implication of his name is uh, he's a deceiver, he's a thief, he's going to be really crafty. And there's this great line in there where um, they're trying to, well, we'll talk about it in a moment, like they're trying to deceive their father and Jacob says, but uh, Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man, which is just great. So... Rebecca gets this prophecy from the Lord. The younger is going to rule over the older. And these two boys grow up, and they're kind of in competition with each other. Esau is big, strong, kind of stereotypically masculine. Obviously, Harry really loves to hunt, and Jacob is like, not those things. How many secondborns have we got in here? <laughs> it's like, oh, God, that's me. Um, there's this great little line in Genesis 26. It says, when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and also Basemath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. So again, killer baby name, Basemath. I assume that means multiplication and division. <laughs> and this is, again, as I was reading the story, it's like, this is a line in the Bible. This is divinely inspired word of God. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. No explanation why. Some of you, how many of you are a source of grief to your in-laws, <laughs> right? There's no explanation of why. It's just Rebecca does not like these two girls at all. So anyway, um, Esau goes out hunting one day. He comes back. He's absolutely just famished. Jacob's making a tasty stew, as one does. And Esau's like, give me some of that stew. And he's like, no. Not going to do that. Again, sibling rivalry, second, you know, second born's always trying to get it over the firstborn. Um, and he's like, I'm desperate. Like, and so Jacob says, sell me your birthright. Like, give me your right to the inheritance, and I will give you some of this tasty stew. And he says, done. Um, and so Esau sells his birthright for this stew. And then Rebekah helps Jacob to deceive the father, Isaac. So Isaac is kind of losing his sight. He needs to bless the right son. So that son receives kind of the inheritance and moving the story forward. So Jacob dresses up like Esau. He goes, he kills a goat. He kind of straps goat hair over his forearms and he kind of changes his voice a little bit maybe so he sounds more like Esau. And he's like, dad, it's like totally me. And so Isaac lays hands on the wrong son, gives him the blessing. And then Esau comes home and he's like, what the heck? Like, that was totally my birthright, and you stole it, and he's enraged. And so Jacob runs away to his uncle Laban's house, where he then proceeds to marry not one, but both of his cousins. Again, we've all been here. 
He falls in love with his cousin. He thinks she's a total babe. His uncle says, you could totally marry your cousin because that's a normal thing we do in the ancient Near East, but you have to work for me for seven years. So he's like, okay, great, I'm going to do that. So he works for seven years, gets married, wakes up the next morning, realizes it was the wrong sister. Again, we've all been here. I love how relatable scripture is sometimes. So he's like, what the heck? You tricked me. And he's like, yeah, but you have to, I have to marry off the older kid before I can do the younger. He says, okay, how about I work another seven years and then I can marry the other daughter? And he says, okay, fine, we'll do that. And so he ends up marrying both of these girls. Um, and so this is Leah and Rachel. And they can't stand each other. Again, more sibling rivalry. Um, and they kind of get into a competition of who can have more babies than the other one. And it's not working out. Leah has problems. So she's like, well, I'm going to get him to sleep with my servants. And those are basically my kids. And that's kind of how we get the 12 tribes of Israel. They're going back and forth. And this, this line, this is so great. During wheat harvest, Reuben, so this is one of the kids that they have, went out in the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother, Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? <laughs> Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. So ladies, <laughs> just, you know, again, this is how practically the Bible works. If you're having problems getting your husband to sleep with him, buy some mandrakes from your sister, convince him that he now owes you because now you have mandrakes where she does not. And that's how you make things happen. All right? This is the divinely inspired word of God, okay? So then Jacob decides he wants to bail on his uncle's house. He's like, I've done all this work for you. I've increased everything. And Laban's like, okay, I guess you can go. And so he tricks his father-in-law by taking all the weird sheep and goats and like breeding all of those. So he gets even more sheep and goats because that's kind of the economy of the day. And then he leaves and then Laban chases him and he's like, where the heck are all my household gods? And Jacob's like, I don't know where they are. And Rachel stole her own dad's household gods and like hid them underneath her saddle on her camel. But then she's like, oh, I'm menstruating, so I can't get up, so you can't find them. And he's like, darn it, where are my household gods? Like, again, this is all in the Bible. Why do I tell you all this? Okay, what the heck does this have to do with you? Because God is a God who turns curses into blessings, even when your family is a total mess. <laughs> so how many of you, you have a messy family? Uh, pretty much everybody, okay? Yeah. So that's where this gets relatable for a second, is like, the, like we think of, you know, when we're growing up, especially in the, in the church, and you've got like the flannel graph and everything, it's like the heroes of the Bible, you know, where we kind of give people a pass because they are blessed by God, because they're the emissaries of what God is doing. And remember, like the larger narrative here is God has promised Abraham, like, I'm going to bless you with a family, but through your family, I'm going to bless all other nations. I'm going to bring everybody back into relationship with me. So that's the larger narrative. But all of these characters, they, like, when we start to read it, honestly, we're like, what is going on? This family is bizarre. Like, this is like a reality television show just waiting to be written. It's like Arrested Development season six could be this, you know what I mean? But I think that that, to me, is so powerful because it gives me permission to recognize, like, 
even in my own jacked up story or my own jacked up family, like God is still so eminently capable of doing something. There's not this level of excellence that you have to prove yourself before God will move in and through your story. And I think this really touches a lot of times on what we talk about when we talk about God as sovereign. So um, God is sovereign, meaning like he's all powerful or God is in control. And there's a way in which so often this gets taught that God ordains everything that happens. Like all you are is like a pawn in this cosmic game that God is playing and he's predetermined every decision you ever make. And then all of a sudden you have to kind of defend like why people make bad decisions. And it's like, oh, God intended for them to do those sorts of things. And so now God is the author of evil. And it just gets really messy because we have this idea of sovereignty is like God is so much in control. He's determining everything that has happened. And so he is the author of good and evil alike. But I think this is a far more biblically honest way to understand God's sovereignty. Um, And I think it's very well reflected in this story that God is the God who turns curses into blessings. Like God's power is not in the fact that he controls every micro move in creation, but it's his ability to enter into the messiness of the story and to say, I can actually do something with that. And that God is constantly turning over curses. The things that were meant to kill us or to destroy us end up becoming the things that bring us life when God gets a, gets a handle on our stories. Like the curses that we've lived under, the proclamations that have been made over us or our addictions or the things that, that are meant, that meant from the enemy to bring us down, uh, to kill us, to keep us isolated, whatever it might be. God steps into those stories and he begins to do something where now it becomes a blessing. And you, many of you know this, like God doesn't change the events in your past, right? Like those things don't go away. What you did, you did. And that's true but the outcome of those events can radically shift when God steps into our stories because this God is a God who is deeply involved and present. And a lot of times the sovereign God that we're presented with is a God who is very distant. He's kind of like, you know, the chess master in the sky kind of motif and he's already written out the mathematical equation for how the base math and the complicated math to show like this is how the world is going to work. And that's just not a Christian idea. It's not a Jewish idea. Like, The Yahweh God is a God who is intimately involved moment to moment, moving through the story, turning curses into blessings. He's so very present to us. So after 20 years of being away, Jacob decides that he's going to return uh, to Esau. And so he starts sending gifts ahead to butter up his big brother because he knows his brother's furious. He's like taken his birthright. He's taken all these things from him. And that's where we're going to end up in the story. So they're kind of passing through the wilderness. Um, And this is Genesis chapter 32. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. 
So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. So oftentimes in scripture, we see angels appearing to somebody that God intends to kind of enter into their story in radical ways and kind of subvert their understanding of how the world is supposed to work and to use them for his purposes in kind of preserving at all costs this family and within that family a bloodline so that he could bring about Jesus as the Messiah. And usually what you see is an angel of the Lord comes and an angel is kind of like an ambassador, uh, someone who speaks on behalf of God. But every once in a while you see an engagement with an angel in the Old Testament where people treat that person as if it is God himself. So they take off their shoes, they bow down. And usually when we see angels and someone bows, they say, no, 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 I'm just the messenger. And sometimes they don't do that. So there's several stories within the Old Testament where we look at it and we go, perhaps that is actually God incarnate or the pre-incarnate Christ. This is Jesus appearing in the Old Testament in ways um, that perhaps they didn't know at the time, but because we know Jesus, now we do. So an example would be um, when Joshua is kind of has crossed over into the promised land with the Israelites for the first time, and it says the captain of the Lord's army appears to Joshua. And it's very similar. He says, what's your name? And he says, why do you need to know my name? And he says, are you for us or against us? And he says, well, neither, but here's what I'm here to say. So we see these kinds of stories, and this is totally one of those stories. We see this man, uh, sometimes in translation it says this angel. Uh, Jacob wrestles with the angel. Jacob wrestles with this man, and then Jacob kind of leads our understanding of who this is because he calls this place Peniel. He says, because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And so we can look at this story as a Christophany, a revelation of Christ in the Old Testament that's pointing to the kind of work that Christ is going to do in the future. And we see this very, it's just a, such a strange story because we see Jacob wrestling, we see he actually overcomes God, he beats God to a certain degree because God's like, hey, let me go, it's daybreak. And he says, no, not until you bless me. Um, and then he gets these two odd things. He gets uh, a new name, Israel. Israel literally means to wrestle with God. Um, and he gets a limp. And I think that that's so fascinating for us understanding our relationship with Jesus today. That God wrestles out of us our old names and blesses us with a new name and a limp. So imagine Jacob being born and you're, you're given this name heel grabber. You're given this name deceiver or thief. And everybody around you tells you that's who you are. Well, guess what kind of life you're going to live? Like how many of you, it's like when you were real little, someone spoke something over you and you're like, well, if that must be true of me, then so be it. And you just accepted that. And it, maybe someone didn't call you Jacob, but they just said, oh, well, you're no good. Or, oh, well, you have to be the pretty one. Or, well, you're only going to get people to love you if you really have something to offer them. Or, well, don't show your emotions because that's a sign of vulnerability. Like if you're going to go feel your feelings, you need to leave. And then once you get a hold of yourself, then you can come back in. You see, that's the kind of thing that happens to us when we're very little is we receive these names from our families of origin, from the people around us, from the surrounding culture, and we begin to believe that those things are true. 
And so what happens in the story of Jacob, when he receives that name as he grows up, is he lives into that story. He is the thief. He is the deceiver. He's constantly doing these things because he's also brilliant, you know, not to detract from him. He's a very smart guy, but he's able to deceive his own father. He's able to deceive his brother. He's able to deceive his uncle to get what he wants. And guess what? It kind of works for him. He has a lot of goats, you know? And when that's the currency of the day and you got some spotty goats and you got some stripy goats, like you're in the pocket, you know what I mean? And so it's worked for him. But this whole time in Jacob's story, he's been doing things out of his own strength, fulfilling his name. And I love that definition of sin. Sin is when we overdo our strengths, where God has given each one of us like really beautiful, viable gifts to offer the world. But instead of relying on God to allow him to flow through us in those gifts, we turn those things into a liability because we start to overdo our strengths. So for me, for example, being someone who is really oriented towards finding peace in the world, like finding harmony, uh, like kind of passing through conflict, what is so easy for me to do is actually overdo that compulsive need to keep peace instead of making peace, and I end up kind of in sloth where I'm arrested by inactivity. And that's an example of like a deadly sin that I would struggle with because it's right next to my greatest gift to the world, this idea of peace, but it can so easily cast over into being about sloth and indecision and avoidance of conflict. And so Jacob is living out of his old name, but he's living out of his own strength too. He's not relying on Yahweh. And he needs to learn dependence upon God in order to really fulfill what God has called him to. And I love that he calls this place Peniel, that he has seen God face to face. Like he commemorates the place where he happened. And I think that's so important for us to remember. We need those moments. We need those kind of uh, erect stones in our lives, those places to go, this is where this happened. This is the place. So whenever I pass by this place, maybe it's a moment on a calendar, maybe it's a specific area of town to go, that's the place where God met me. And I love that he says, this is where I met God face to face and yet my life was spared. Because we all have these moments in life where we meet God face to face and not only is our life spared, but it's actually handed back to us and it's a greater gift than it was before. So out of that story, Jacob becomes Israel and Israel becomes the identity of an entire people. Imagine entire people and they are defined by as those who wrestle with God. Like that's the, that's the juice, that's the foundational reality of their faith. We are the people who wrestle with God, but in wrestling with God, we find intimacy. We find our identity in him, in that relationship. You know, so many of us, like conflict is the opposite of intimacy. But for the Jewish people, as Israel, like wrestling with God, that is the very substance of their faith. But even Jacob took time to accept this new name that God has given him. So he starts to kind of limp back to this anticipation of a showdown with his brother because he's robbed him of everything. And it's so funny because like right after this story, Jacob's like, all right, we're heading towards Esau. And he goes, I'm going to send some of my wives up front. I'm going to send my kids. And it's like, you're creating a human shield out of your children? Like, what are we doing here, man? But what he finds is Esau kind of comes up over the horizon. He sees Jacob. He runs. He embraces his brother. And then his brother's like, I'm so sorry. Like, I thought, uh, you know, you were going to 
beat me up and I want to give you half of everything I have. And Esau's like, no, just to see you uh, is everything that I need. So it's this really beautiful story of forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, but you can almost hear Jacob having to, to learn how to rely on God and to step outside of being the thief, the deceiver, the heel grabber, and becoming the person who has wrestled God because God goes ahead of him and begins to soften the heart of his brother for reconciliation. And I think that's, that's, I think, what we're really looking at today, that in wrestling with the God revealed in Jesus, we find deep rest. And I love that in English, the word rest is present in the midst of the word wrestle. Because the truth is that you and I, we were made to engage with God the way that Jacob does. But unfortunately, so many of us have grown up in a faith or we have a personality type that tells us that struggles should not be part of our faith. That if you have questions or you have doubts or there are things that have not come to fulfillment in your story, you have to tuck those things away or you have to ignore them because that's not what faith is. Because so often in modern Christianity, we're just peddling a certainty machine. That's what it means to have faith, is you can't have any questions, you can't be wrestling with anything at all, you just have to hold tightly to what you're told and say, I believe, I believe, I believe, and we've lost this quality of actually wrestling with God. But I think conflict-avoidant people miss out on the vibrant life of faith. If we do not learn how to pick a fight with God, if we do not learn how to wrestle with God and demand a blessing from him, we will not live a vibrant faith. You know, one of the things that I've been wrestling with for like a year and a half now is this idea of moving from a life of obligation to a life of choice and joy. And the most frustrating thing that God keeps telling me is like, what do you want? And I'm like, no. Lord, just tell me what to do. You know, I just want to know what to do with my life. And, and, just, cause, and that's been the beauty of my story is that God has accommodated my indecisiveness and he's blessed me with things throughout my life that weren't even things that I was looking for. Like coming down here and, being, and pastoring this church or the work that I was doing in Nashville, they weren't things that I was looking for. And I actually you know, foolishly made a deal with the Almighty when I got offered this job. And I'm like, Lord, if we could just keep doing this forever, like you just keep offering me things that I'm not looking for so I know that it's not my ego and I don't have to put any effort, that would be great. And he's like, okay, we'll do that for a couple of years. But even this, you know, this past year going through like tremendous heartbreak and relational strife and going away on sabbatical and like, do I stay? Do I go? Like, what am I doing? And I even coming back from, from Ireland on my sabbatical and like, you know, oftentimes when we're trying to discern like what the Lord is doing and, and where he's leading us, like for us charismatics, we kind of have this like first tier. It's like, you go out to the, and you're like, Lord, show me a sign. And you're just like waiting for like an eagle to fly by and there's a rainbow behind it. And you're like, thank you, Lord, there it is. And sometimes that does happen, okay? Sometimes God does speak to us with a sign and we have to have eyes that see. So that's kind of like the first level. Huh? Test it. Yeah, put that fleece out. Then put down another fleece, you know? Sometimes eagles are just eagles, you know? Not always. So that's kind of our, you know, the charismatic realm. That's how we know what God's calling us to. And then the second level is usually about our emotions. And this is what we get from like kind of Catholic Ignatian spirituality. Like listen to your emotions and they're not truth, but there's something that's indicating this deeper thing. So I thought, oh, maybe when I get off the airplane, 
you know, in Orlando, like I'll have this overwhelming feeling that'll just confirm, like it'll be a sense of dread, like, God, I can't believe I have to see Daniel Barr's face one more time, you know? <laughs> and it would just be indicative of like, it's time for me to move on. Or I'll be like, just like I've had vacations before, I come back and I'm like, man, I cannot get, wait to get back to work. This is going to be great. And I had no emotional context for coming back. I'd been gone for five weeks, five weeks. And there was no feelings attached to it, good or bad. And in prayer, when I got back, the Lord's just like, yeah, so what do you want? I'm like, damn it, I don't know what I want. That's the problem. And I came back and I was like, I wish someone would just tell me. And I, like, I met with my pastoral coach and I met with the bishop and I'm like, somebody just freaking tell me what I want. And they're like, no, because you trust that you have been shaped by Jesus to, that your desires are the same as his desires. And I see this is odd because a lot of times we're told whatever you desire must obviously be the opposite of God right? Because you're just a piece of garbage. And you have to distrust everything that you desire. But if you've been walking with him and he's been shaping you and forming you and kind of wrestling out of you those old names of, of who you used to be to step into this new place, can you trust that? And it's actually a sign of, I think, maturity, even though I don't like it, to get to this place where God's saying, no, what do you want? Like, go out, explore, do. Like, let's, I, I'm behind you in these things. So I think Learning how to wrestle with God does two things. Number one, it gives us a new name. We come out from under those old names that have been given to us by our families of origin, by our culture, the things that we're told we're supposed to be. Um, I love that Ian Morgan Cron says, our personality is the story we tell ourselves that runs contrary to grace. So I have to try harder, or I have to achieve more, or I have to be smarter, or I have to be prettier. All those stories that make up your personality are running, the story that runs contrary to grace, to recognize your true identity as a gift to be received. It's not something that you earn, that you, re, you fight for, or you take into your own hands. But God wrestles us out of our old names, and he gives us a new name, and he says, this is now going to be the thing that identifies you. Like, this is who you truly are in my eyes. And the second blessing that God gives us is that he gives us a limp, which seems weird, you know? Especially in our culture where it's always like onwards and upwards and strength to strength and glory to glory and like manifest destiny and you got to present, you know, put your best foot forward and you got to be like a winning person for Jesus. Like, you know what I mean? Like the, the stories we're supposed to tell as Christians are the ones where like, oh, I used to be a mess, but now I'm fine, right? Like, and that's just, that's just Americanism. Like that's not true faith. Like what if the people who are most intimate with God are the ones that are walking around with a limp? What if we've got a couple scars from fighting with God, you know? And I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I don't trust people that don't have scars. I don't trust people that don't have limps because it means that they've, they've actually done the work, but they've come through it, and they've seen God face to face, and yet their lives have been spared, but they've also learned to walk in dependence upon God. You know, like, and it's so weird to us that like maturity in God means we become more dependent upon Him day by day. You know, that we are wrestled out of this fierce self-reliance thing, and we learn to rely on Him. So when we wrestle with God, He gives us new names, but he breaks our illusory strength that we think that we've got it all together and he teaches us how to rely on him. So in this Advent season, we're following Jacob into the desert. 
We're following Jesus into the desert. We're following all of Israel into the desert to go and pick a fight with the Almighty and probably to get our butts handed to us by him because he's a lot bigger than we are. Um, but in that, to be broken of some of those things. So here's what we're going to do. Um, you've got a piece of paper. You've got a pen. I'm going to give you some time. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to give you some time. And this is the question that I want you to respond to. Do not put your name on this piece of paper, by the way. So where am I wrestling with Jesus right now? Is there, is there a theological question that's welling up inside of you? Is there um, a situation in your life, uh, like a job-related situation? Is there a, a relationship that is frustrating? Is there a lack of relationship that's there? I want you to take time and write down what are some of the places where like, either you are wrestling with Jesus right now or maybe you need permission to pick a fight because you're afraid to do it because it makes you not a good Christian to not have answers. And you're going to write these things down. And when you're done, I want you to fold that paper in half. And you're just going to bring that up and you're going to kind of lay it here as you're kind of like picking a fight with God. And this is the, the arena. You're going to lay these things down. We're going to sing together. And then after a, a song, I'm going to invite, I'm going to come back up. I'm going to invite all of you to come up and to pick somebody else's fight. And you're going to take it back and you're going to pray over that person. And you won't know their name, but you might see in their wrestling, first of all, it's like, oh, I'm not alone in the fight that I want to pick with God. Um, but we don't have to do it by, like, by ourselves. Like we enter in, we are still to some degree Israel, like the people who wrestle with God together. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to give you that time just to, to consider what are my wrestling with God right now. So Yahweh, we thank you for this story of Jacob and the angel. Um, we thank you that you are a God who is sovereign and all-powerful, not because you command and ordain everything, but that you enter into the mess. You enter into our mass messy families. You enter into our messy names. And you are able to turn those curses into blessings if only we open up our lives to you. So Lord, right now I pray, would you reveal to each one of us what are the fights that we need to pick with you? Uh, the things that we're afraid to admit to because maybe it reflects poorly on our faith or we think it reflects poorly on Jesus. But really help us, Lord, to bring those things to the surface. We don't want to be conflict-avoidant people. We want to be people who live a vibrant faith where there's belief and there's doubt, where there's questions and there's answers, where there's satisfaction and dissatisfaction, but all of it we direct towards you, that it's this place that we can erect that memory stone to say, this is Peniel, the place that I met God face to face and yet my life has been spared. So speak, Lord, to your children in the strong name of Jesus right now. So just as you fill that out, fold that paper in half, bring it forward and lay it here on the steps. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.